That's FM Literature. It is coming to you from Cape Town as we hear there, the drug capital of South Africa. But nonetheless, here we are coming to you live in the flesh from Cape Town. As you know, a show about words and writing and books and also today about a festival, a very busy, exciting festival. Coming to you live, we are from the Open Book Festival here in Cape Town from the Fugard Theatre, incidentally. With the team with me is producer Solo Falopelo and technical producer Lance Andrews. And in Johannesburg, we have Phineas Mutoba. Well, what we're going to do is give you as much of the flavor of the open book as we possibly can. You can probably hear it buzzing in the background. Very exciting. Not necessarily adhering to our usual features today, but we do have a steady stream of writers from far and wide. And all being well, let me tell you who they will be. And I know for sure who our first guest will be because he's sitting right here in front of me. He's Raymond E. Feist. He's all the way from the United States. He's a writer of fantasy or fantastic fiction, um, best known for the Rift War cycle series, which I believe do terribly well here in South Africa. His book sales have reached something like 18 million worldwide. So whatever he's doing, he's doing it well. After that, we're going to be chatting to Moray Roda. He's from very much from South Africa. He is Mr. Comic. He's a designer illustrator himself, and he lives and breathes comics. He's also curator of the Comics Festival right here at the Open Book Festival. does a number of other things, but he's going to be telling us all about the, the rise and rise of comics. After that, we're turning our attention to poetry. I'm going to be talking to Francesca Beard. She's from the UK, taking part in the Poeta Poetica program that's part of the festival. Francesca is born in Malaysia, but she's also been called the Queen of British Performance Poetry, should be nice. She'll be joined by another young man, also a poet, also from the UK. He's Jacob Samlarosa. So we'll be doing a, a bit of a double act there. But after that, uh, we're going to be chatting to Susan Hawthorne from the... In actual fact, she's from Australia, I think. Wears many, many hats. She's a poet, novelist, aerialist, political activist, author of 10 books. And she tells me that it's International Bibliodiversity Day, so we'll find out exactly what that means. All the news at 2 o'clock. Looking forward to this one. Sefi Atta. Well, Sefi is Nigerian-born. Presently divides her time, as they say, between Nigeria, the States, and the UK. She's a playwright as well as a novelist, and her latest book, latest book is called A Bit of Difference. After that, Jeff Dio. So we really do have uh, a load of really, really interesting people, so I hope you're going to be able to stay with us. Jeff Dio. Well, he's English-born. He now lives in California. He's a man of a couple of worlds, many books. His latest book is called Another Great Day at Sea, Life Aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Amongst other things, looking forward to chatting to him. Our reader today is uh, Harry Jaber, who is a, a big book fan. He's also the manager of Leopard's Leap, who, let me tell you, keep the book world afloat in wine sponsorship. So looking forward to finding out what he's reading. In our story feature, another documentary in the BBC Changing World series, Roger Webster, hopefully, will be joining us on the line with another historical yarn to spin. In our back page feature, rounding up the festival for us, will be uh, Colleen Higgs. She's a publisher of Majaji Books. Talking also to Jesse Breitenbach, who's going to be talking a little bit about the book covers, which I think is a really interesting topic. And closes always the Sunday play. But just quickly, I want to tell you, while we're talking here from the Open Book Festival in Cape Town, just to let you know next week, if you're in Josie, uh, there's the Josie Book Fair that's coming up on Friday and Saturday, 26th, 27th. It's happening at the Central Johannesburg College, Ellis Park Campus, and the theme is reading the word and the world, the role of book clubs. And uh, a guest of the book fair, Josie Book Fair, is going to be author, artist, and filmmaker Zeke Samdar, who's also here floating around somewhere. I haven't seen him today, but he's definitely here as well. So 
get yourself to the Josie Book Fair if you're up there. Just another quick bit of news is that the winner of the City Press Non-Fiction Award for 2014 is journalist Vashti Naipaul, who will be receiving 60,000 rand to fund the research and writing the book that she's doing, which is focusing on the challenge of helping gifted children from South Africa's poor communities. Good call, that one, Vashti. So very best of luck to her. And if you would like to enter your book for 2015, the, its uh, submissions are now open, and the nature of your book, just so that you know, should be to add an understanding of South African society, history, and politics. So there you go. And don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us at any stage, you're welcome. Books at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. We're at SAFM Literature. Well, let me start with my guest who's been sitting here waiting patiently. He's Raymond E. Feist. He's all the way from San Diego. And a little bit I can tell you about Raymond is that he, long ago he had an idea about writing a novel all about a boy who would be a magician. And that started back in 1977, soon after he did his degree in communication arts. Well, five years later, the first of the book was written, but magic seems not to have left him, left him or his pen or his mouse, whatever. Um, because he's subsequently written 30 books in the Rift War Cycle series featuring the twin worlds of Midkania and Kalawan. And if you're, a, if you're a Rift War fan, you won't need me to tell you any more. And if you're not, let me tell you a little bit about them. He's, uh, well, actually, Raymond's going to tell us about them. But uh, what I'm wondering to myself, Raymond, is what goes on in the mind of a man who has, has spent his working life in the world of fantasy. I'm wondering where your reality is. And in the mind of a man who sold something like 18, 18 million books across the world, firstly, welcome to South Africa. Thank you very much. Um, tell me, have, is this your first visit to South Africa? Is it? Is it re that's surprising because apparently you have so many fans here. The regime invited to come down here basically as a propaganda tour, and uh, many of us refused. Uh, once the government changed, uh, suddenly the invitation stopped because nobody felt the need of a propaganda, of a propaganda tour. Okay. Okay, I, I hope so. I'm not hearing you terribly well. Um, in fact, I'm not really hearing you at all. Okay. Okay, no, still not got you. So we're just going to see what we can do with that. But just whilst we're trying to get that fixed, um, I think w one of the things that you've done is with the Rift War series, uh, which started off as just a trilogy, there's subsequently been the Rift War saga, Serpent War, Conclave of Shadows, and I think you've just put to bed the last in your last trilogy. When you started, was it your intention to write so many books? No, not at all. It was uh, a happy accident. I, I didn't even know that there would be a sequel. I, first, to begin with, I didn't know anybody would buy Magician. So when it was uh, optioned for a contract and then published, and then they asked for a sequel, suddenly that first three-book arc became definite. It wasn't until I was about the third book of the second series that it occurred to me, I might have to do all five stories. And um, it, it seemed to be almost inevitable about the third book after that, when every time I turned in a manuscript, my editor would say, okay, what happens next? Yeah. And no pressure. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to know that uh, uh, you're engaging over the long haul, and people really do connect with the characters and want to see what happens next. And then I got to the logical conclusion and said, okay, it's time to finish this. Mm. Mm. 
I'm just thinking 1977 is kind of where it began, which predated Harry Potter and all, all that sort of thing. Uh, subsequently, what was the what was the climate back when you started? Were, were there a lot of magic stories? You know, this fantastic fiction genre. Was there a lot of that around? There was a fair amount. It, it hadn't reached the mainstream. Uh, the, the science fiction and fantasy genre buyer was very well established in the marketplace, but it was about that time you started beginning to see uh, books like Dune and uh, the late Robert Heinlein's, you know, the last four or five Heinlein novels and uh, uh, Philip Farmer's Rif River World. Those things started climbing up the bestseller list. And in reality, for anybody in the publishing business, there are two genres. There's bestseller and not bestseller. And as soon as you hit the bestseller list, you get a visibility and uh, a larger audience. And so it, there was a cascade effect, and people became more receptive to going into the science fiction and fantasy section of the bookshop and seeing what was new. Uh, I became uh, the beneficiary of that because my third book hit the New York Times bestseller list and, oh, hit, yeah. and hit the Times list in London. And once that happens, uh, you're back in that, you're now in the bestseller genre. Yeah. So, so that was my watershed. From that point on, it was just simply uh, uh, putting out the, uh, the books that my readership wanted. Yeah. I love the way you say in reality. Um, let's talk about reality versus fiction. I mean, do you put yourself, uh, do you put yourself into another headspace entirely when you're I, writing? I think every writer does. I, I think there is an element of isolation involved and completely subsuming yourself within your craft, or you're you're playing at it. You're not really delivering, and I, and that's absent genre. That is any writer who really delves into his or her work is going to find themselves in that headspace. And uh, it's it's a dangerous place to be sometimes. You can spend a little too much time in your own head and it's not healthy. And uh, it's why, you know, statistically speaking, writers have a slightly higher incidence of depression and alcoholism than say the general population. <laughs> and that's a documented yeah, fact. Yeah. Yes, yes, I'm sure. Maybe you'll be just the man to write that book. N nonetheless, at the moment, you don't really have time to do, be doing any of those sort of things because clearly your readers are demanding more and more. But 30 books later, mm -hmm. do you find yourself revisiting the same the same areas you think hang on i've done this before and and are you in this magical fantastical world have they moved into the digital arena you know well no of course not it's all swords and sorcery and dragons lovely and, and it remains that yeah, yeah. i mean, I mean if, I, if i suddenly had a, a wizard pull out a calculator i could hate me <laughs> but i think also it's it's the fact that you, you, you can find yourself duplicating tropes, and the trick is is to, to make sure that the characters are very different one from another, and that the second time you go to that particular well, you, you, you come up with something novel, and to differentiate it from the first time you went. Uh, but it's like history. I write uh, basically a his historical fiction about a, a virtual non-existent world that has its own background, it has its own cultures, it has its own ebb and flow of history. And so if I'm writing about a character who's somewhat like a previous character, my duty is to make sure they're distinctive one from another. Uh, and I think that keeps it fresh. I mean, I mean, Napoleon wasn't the first guy to go out and conquer the world, so nobody writes historians' letters saying, oh, he's just too much like Alexander the Great. You know, no, he's not. Yeah. He's nothing like Alexander the Great. Yeah. And uh, if, you know, the Tong dynasty is nothing like, or the Han dynasty is nothing like ancient Rome, or the Aztecs, or... You know, the ancient Egyptians, they're all unique. They all have their own flavor. And they have the common element of expansionistic empire building. But that's about it. And, mm. and once you look at your, at least in my case, once I looked at my work as being historical fiction, 
then it became very easy to write. Then, I, then suddenly I was channeling Thomas Costain and Mary Renault and, you know, Rosemary Sutcliffe and, and Bernard Cornwall and, and Patrick O'Brien. I was, I was taking living characters and putting them in a historical set and then writing about them. Um, and every writer has their own arsenal of tricks. You know, their own way of approaching the task and executing it. And that was mine. The, and just as Napoleon is not like Alexander the Great, so South Africa is not like Poland or not like Australia. Exactly. And yet your books seem to be, so, I mean, 18 million across the world. You're obviously talking a sort of universal language. What does it tell us about any of these different countries? Where, where are your biggest readerships? And what does it tell us about those countries? It, it doesn't tell us anything about the countries. It tells us a great deal about what readers may have in common in taste. I, I, you know, I mean, one of the most successful imported series in American history, because we don't really import a lot of books from overseas. And, I, I, and forgive me, I've forgotten the name of the two authors, but The Laughing Policeman was the first novel. It, 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 uh, basically, a Swedish murder mysteries. And they did very well in America because Americans like murder mysteries. So obviously Polish readers and Czech readers and French readers and, and Dutch readers like fantasy because they my books do very well in those markets. And I think it's the common humanity. It's the fact that a lot of us enjoy escapist fantasy. A lot of us enjoy going to alien worlds and different places. A lot of us really find the same emotional payoff for certain kinds of book endings. And that's what binds us together. I just have to ask you, and I imagine that maybe this is not relevant, but 30 books later, um, and you're obviously very prolific. Writer's block, does it does it come to you? Yeah, I, I, I work around as best I can. Uh, I would say, had I not had episodes of writer's block, I'd probably be... I've had 32 books published so far, uh, 30 in the, in the cycle, one companion uh, chronicles of publishing, a bit like an atlas gazetteer with a narrative, and then one standoff modern fantasy called fairy tale. I think... If I hadn't had my episodes of Writer's Block, I'd probably be working on book 34 or 35 right now instead of working on book 33. Uh, and, and mostly what I've discovered is Writer's Block is your subconscious telling you, you have other things you have to deal with before I'm going to let you sit down and be creative. And the most recent bout was a real big family upheaval with a lot of drama in it that was difficult to deal with and, and was finally resolved to the satisfaction of all the people involved. And uh, I feel better for it, and I'm hoping I can, you know, get back on the horse, as they say, and, and start writing again very soon. Uh, the previous one was during my divorce. You know, that, that was a tough one, and uh, that was 14 years ago. But in both instances, it was clearly a case of you had other things to take care of before you can write. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. That's certainly the, the muse of writing telling you something. Just lost the Midkemia and Kelowan. They sound, I haven't read your book, so I don't know, but they sound very, very visually dramatic. Movies? Um, you never know. We're always talking to people. Yeah. Uh, I've had movies optioned before, and then they go into what Hollywood calls turnaround, which means a lovely thing. I keep the money and get the rights back. Um, you never know. I mean, I, I, I could get a call from my agent tomorrow saying, we've got this offer, it looks good, let's let's uh, wrap it up, and uh, we make an announcement the following week. Or it could be another 30 years before we see it on the big screen. Yeah. You never know. Right, you don't, you don't, and you never know what uh, what new trilogy is going to come out of you. I know that your latest book, um, Raymond, is called Chaos War, the Chaos War Saga. Have you got a website if people can follow yes, you? Yes, Cry D, which is the name of the it's village that my character was uh, conceived in. So that's C-R-Y-D-E. Right, dot com. And also I can be found on Facebook and Twitter and occasionally in the local pub. 
<laughs> well, that's enough to uh, to loosen your writer's block, I'm sure. Raymond E. Fies, it's been absolutely fascinating. Going to give out the details once again. Very best of luck. Enjoy your stay Thank here you in South Africa. Much. Your big reading fans right they, here. They've been wonderfully welcoming, and I will be recommending a visit down here to any writer who asks. Excellent. Raymond E. Fies, lovely. Wish you many more years of writing lots of fabulous, fantastic fiction. Thank, Thank you. you. Raymond E. Fies, if you'd like to check out more, find him on Facebook. That's F-E-I-S-T. Otherwise, check his website, which is crydee.com. That's C-R-Y-D-E-E.com. You're listening to SFM Literature coming to you live from the Open Book Festival. Richards. Well, let me tell you that the Cape Town Marathon is not the only thing that's happening in Cape Town right now. It's uh, We're at the very busy Open Book Festival, which is absolutely buzzing here at the Fugard Theatre. And uh, as you heard us talking there to Raymond E. Feist a little bit about the world of fantasy, well, certainly not moving a million miles from the world of fantasy, because our next guest certainly occupies a similar space as a as a comic fanatic obsessive i could say <laughs> he's, he's moray roda and he's the curator of the comic fest which is at the district six homecoming center which is right next door to the fugard and i have to say it's completely brimming with weird and wonderful people lovely to have you with us moray thank you very much thank you Nancy. um and i i know that this is the um this is the the fourth and i think that there's been comics represented each and every time yeah the um, the comic fest is it, it? It seems to me that there's a huge amount of people there, and it's a very sort of niche collection of people. Is it is it a growing? Uh, is it? Can I call it a cult? And is it growing? Um, I guess you could call it a cult. It's uh, definitely growing. Uh, four years ago, there was very little out there, and very few comic books. But as you said, just having a look on the inside, it's. Um, Absolutely incredible the, the amount of comic books that there are out there, but also the different kind of comic books that there are out there. There's, there's stuff for kids, there's stuff for teenagers, there's stuff for adults, um, fantasy, there's superheroes, there's... Yeah, there, there really is something for everybody, isn't there? You know, I was talking to one of your comic, uh, comic uh, illustrators just yesterday, and he said people are very sniffy about comics, you know, very sort of disdainful. But I have to say, if I had a penny for every person who said that they start, they cut their reading teeth on comics, I, it, is it, do you sort of start off as a kid getting into comics and then move on, or do you find people come to comics later in life? Um, I've, I've experienced both. I'm one of those people that started at a very young age reading comic books, but it wasn't the first thing. It wasn't my, my gateway reading kind of stuff. Um, books, actual books, those those were the things that I got into first, and the comic books sort of happened when I was 13, 14 at, at that age. But a lot of people do come into comic books first and then start reading from that point on. Yeah, and... and there are comics. There are comics that appeal to children, obviously, but there are some that are sort of quite subversive. There are some that appeal way across the board. Is it um, is it the style of illustration that distinguishes one genre from another? Not necessarily. It's a lot. A lot of it could be the content as well. Um, something like Tintin, for instance, that everybody has seen. That's that's got a wide audience range. But the artwork itself is quite simplistic and cartoony and straightforward. Extremely detailed. Um, but it, it doesn't just appeal to a certain age group, so it's not the artwork, uh, I would say, but, but more the content. Yeah. You know, it's, the other thing is that I suppose it's one step away, either before or after, from animation. I mean, as you yeah. look at a comic strip, you know, it's like yeah. one of those flick books, you can move it on. Is it every um, 
comic book illustrator's dream to animate, or, or not necessarily? Is there something about the physical comic that's I think, enduring? I think it's the physical comic book and the ability to manipulate the images on a single page and, and sort of face it throughout a book that, that um, appeals to comic book artists more than doing the animation thing. A lot of the comic book artists are animators anyway, um, which always does help uh, that understanding of a living space and a character moving through it it, it, it does definitely I'm not sure what it is exactly, um, not being an illustrator, but there's something usually very nostalgic about comics. I mean, you're wearing a, you're wearing a, a Spider-Man. Look, look, look how many comics. Sort of, yeah, <laughs> Spider-Man, Captain America, Iron Man. That is, that's the whole toot, isn't it? It's yeah. a library of comics on your T-shirt. Um, but it, it's very nostalgic. Where are we going with comics? I know you've just come back from the States. Is there a sort of trend towards something even more nostalgic, or are we looking at sort of new ways with comicking? Um, what I noticed over there, we went to the Eisner, we were at San Diego Comic Con, it's not there, so that's that's why we actually Comic went, we did a, a panel talk on um, South African comic books, it went really well, we did go to the Eisner Awards, which are like the, the Oscar Awards for comic books, and what I noticed there was that the smaller companies who aren't doing as many superhero comic stories, those are the people that, that actually won a lot of the awards. Um, if anything, I think maybe audiences are moving to, towards more cinematic approaches mm -hmm. or, or something like that, um, where you've got your thrillers, you've got your horrors, you've got your supernatural fantasy, you've got sci-fi. So the range is changing. It's the, the genre or format or whatever. It's still the same thing. It's comic books. It's just different stories being told. One of the nice things about comics is that you collect them and you could sort of stick them in your back pocket or whatever, put them in your backpack or, or whatever you do, or, you know, put them sort of on uh, on bookshelves and, yeah. and, and revere them. But the, I'm just wondering, do comics translate onto Kindles? Are, are people who are starting to read their comics electronically? Well, they do. I could yeah. show you some on my phone even. Um, if you've got one of the Android type of phones with a bigger bigger screen things it actually does work you can be effectively on that but i know a lot of people are doing yeah. exactly that thing they're experiencing it through the um the digital world where where there aren't any added effects or anything like that and it's not a page turn it's a page slide um but definitely just lastly i don't know how many comicers you've got what, what do you call a comicist a comic you should call them cartoonists. Okay, cartoonists. I don't know how many you've got in there, but they are all ages and ranges and sizes and genders and all sorts of things. Is it? I mean, I know I opened by saying, is it growing? But what is it that what is it that brings them together? They seem to be like a world apart. Uh, they are storytellers. They they all have something that they want to share with the world. And yeah, they, whether it's single illustrations or whether it's a uh, uh, comic book with sequential pages. They all have a story to tell. I think you're something of a comic evangelist. I've seen presentations yeah. on comicking. It, can people find you? Have you got a website? Is there a sort of generic comic website for, for South Africa? Um, they, yeah, my specific website is www.gainingvelocity.com and it's gaining-velocity.com. Um, there is a comics.co.za that has some information on it. Um, if they search for South African comic books, we are trying to start a Wikipedia page on that as well, okay. so they'll find a lot of 
links going to the South African Army. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what they should really do is get themselves right down here to the District 6 Homecoming Centre. That would be Right amazing. next <laughs> And they can even find you. And you'll be the man wearing the funny T-shirt, so they can look Definitely. out. And we'll be here until 6, so there's plenty of time to get down. Excellent. Good. Well, Mario, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's a possibility we might even be talking to one of your other... Um, and I'll just quickly tell you his name is Daniel... Daniel you. Yes. He's just quickly, whilst we're, we're waiting for um, Manfred, he's done a, a wonderful piece called Souvenir, which is all yeah. about the sort of the story, the history of South Africa, not quite from the early days, but, but you know, it's, it's quite educational too, isn't it? It's not just um, it's, weird it's and a, wacky. It's a fantasy tale set um, in Cape Town, or alternate version of Cape Town, and it's based on the finance legion, basically. Yeah. So, so it's not all that historical, it's, it's more myth legion. As a good comic should indeed be. Yeah. Lovely. Mori Rhoda, thank you very much. Very best of luck. Keep on comicing. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Nancy. My pleasure. Well, if you'd like to know a little bit more about Moray and his work, you can check his site, which is Gaining Hyphen Philosophy, Gaining Hyphen Philosophy um, dot com. Otherwise, you can check www.comics.co.za. Comics.co.za. Sorry, comics with an X. Thank you very much. C-O-M-I, of course it would be with an X, how else would you spell comics? www.comics.co.za You're listening to SFM Literature right here on SFM, coming to you from Cape Town. SFM Literature with Nancy Richards. SFM Literature, it is coming to you from, as you hear, the Open Book Festival here in Cape Town. Very, very busy, very exciting, all sorts of things going on. We've got comics, we've got fantasy, we've got novelists, we've got all sorts of things, and we have poets. Because there is a a dedicated section called Poetica, which is being attended by a whole lot of poets from all over the place. In a minute, I think we're going to be talking to Francesca Beard. She's from the UK, but in the meantime, who we do have, very exciting, is a gentleman by the name of Jacob Sam La Rosa. He's, um, and he's right here with me, and he's got his tablet, and he's got a poem lined up for to read. Lovely to have you with us, Jacob. Thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here, and it's great to be back in uh, Cape Town. Okay, well, that's a clue. So you've been here before. I have, yeah. I was here last year, funnily enough, for the Open Book Festival. Had a really good time, and thus I am I'm back, yeah. Okay. There's um, some work that I've been working on with uh, the director of Poetica, Tony Stewart, oh, yeah. um, that we had the opportunity to show again this year. So, yeah, it's, it's a real joy being back here. Okay, tell us about that work. And is it something that's ongoing? Is it still to come? Yes, it's a developing project. It's an evolving project. It's um, it's affectionately entitled uh, LDNCPT. It was revealed this year as Urban Bus, the sequel. LDNCPT? Uh, LDNCPT, London, oh, Cape oh, Town. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yep, got it. Um, but yeah, essentially it's a poetic dialogue between us as poets speaking about our experiences of our respective cities and how the cities impact upon our identities uh, and this time round so last year we, we simply read some poems that we were developing within that conversation within that dialogue and this time round the uh, 
the enterprise has developed and grown, uh, grown and we've, we've started to bring in some play with technology. So you, you referenced the tablet that I have in front of me. Uh, in the conversation this year, we had a whole soundscape uh, exploration. We were live triggering audio samples that gave a sense of the cities that we were speaking about as we were performing. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, it was an exciting thing for me. I have a real kind of Jones for technology. Uh, so it was an exciting thing for me to be able to realize something like that in collaboration with another poet and, and artist that I have so much yeah. respect for. Oh, I love the idea of the, 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 the city sound backdrop yeah. against the poetry. Uh, right at the moment, we've got the city sound backdrop of the Open Book <laughs> Festival. But what is the... Okay, let's start with Cape Town. What is the city sound backdrop to Cape Town? That was really interesting. So there was voice that Tony was playing around with. There was a certain sense of musicality that she was playing around with in that sense as well. So um, sounds of traffic going past um, and a range of different sounds. Likewise, I was playing around with the sounds of... So there were a couple of specific parts of London that I was exploring, uh, particularly southeast London, which is where I'm actually based. And um, yeah, sounds of of local stores and people having conversations in those stores and the various different languages that are represented in, in, in that part of London. So walking down one street and um, hearing Caribbean accents, African accents, Polish accents and various different languages coming through in those different ways. Absolutely amazing to play around with. Yeah, I totally hear what you say. I was mm. going to say, tell me about the one sound that represents London because London represents the world um, yeah aside from the airplanes flying overhead you could you could be pretty much hearing anything depending on what part of london you're coming from we've just been joined by francesca beard hi francesca nice, nice to have you you're also london based malaysian born but london based that's right also southeast yeah um i think yep yeah, i think we're going to uh, can we can we hear you now yes hello Ooh. yeah a little bit loud sorry okay okay well you can hear the sounds that are going on here um, Francesca, we were just talking to, to Jacob here about the project that he's working on, which is called LDN CPT. Tell me about the projects that you're working on. I was doing a little bit of Googling on you, and you've got something that's called Chinese Whispers. It's a one-woman show. Tell me about that. So that's a show about identity that I, um, that I worked with with an amazing organization called African Snakes, um, which is nationwide in um, in the UK and that I've toured through the British Council um, to uh, fantastic places all over the world and that I'm going to do a little bit of today okay. uh, at the Open Book Festival. Okay, what time? At four o'clock. Okay, four o'clock, that's when SFM Literature will be finished so I can get the long time. Oh, it'd be lovely to see Let's you there. Let's just talk about identity a bit now that you're both here because you're Malaysian born, based in the UK. Jacob, you are what born, based in the UK? I'm actually, I am London born. London um, born. My family hails from Guyana, so okay. I tend to um, hail out my Guyanese heritage at various different points. But yeah, there are a number of different members of my family that say, you're not Guyanese really, you're British. Yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's a mistake to sort of say, to, to label anybody mm. where they come from, because these days people are sort of global citizens. I'm going to be talking to Sefi Atar in just a minute, who's Nigerian born based in London, based in the States, it, it, it doesn't so much matter, and yet it does. Um, Francesca, for you, does it matter? Is it, is it something, do, do you angst about your identity? I used to. <laughs> you, you work through it. Um, I think that identities are 
fascinating and problematic thing for many people. It, um, it's, you know, you, you're judged on your identity and it's, um, it's what people read you as. But you didn't choose your race, you didn't choose your gender, you didn't choose your language, you didn't choose your formative memories, you didn't choose your nationality a lot of the time, you didn't choose your name. And yet these are the things that make us who we are. And then added onto that we have consumerism and how now we are, we're telling a story about who we are all the time as if we're brands, yeah. as human beings. This is a hell of a corny question, so you'll forgive me. Um, does it help you to work through those issues with your poetry? I mean, Francis? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, for me, I do spoken word, so it's a kind of poetry that's very engaged with society. You are the queen of performance poetry. Oh, yeah, I so am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <so>, yeah. <laughs> So, so spoken word is, a, is an art form which is really engaged with audience and which is a dialogue with audience. And I think that um, that it's it, it, personally for me, it kind of saved my life and it helped me find out who I am in a just a really practical way. Yeah. But I also think that so much of what we do as spoken word artists is about, um, I suppose, sharing our story because we want the audience to share their story with us. So um, I know that Jacob particularly and as well we, um, runs loads of workshops. We, we work not only in our performances but also in our... I suppose in our careers, if for want of a better well, word, we yeah. just do. We, it's it's not that we're even. It's not that I'm even evangelical about it, but I do believe that if, if we are to survive as a global global community, which I think we are now, um, it's about getting as many stories of who we are and why we are out there to make the the consensus reality the world a bigger place totally totally I'm, and and i think i think you are jacob you are a little bit evangelical because i think that you've really enjoyed going to schools and a lot of schools you were talking about southeast london here in south africa we've, we've got a lot of schools where you know education is, is difficult but if you give kids poetry or you give them the platform of poetry it can also help them make a little bit more sense of who they are have you seen that in action very much so and i often say that um well whenever i'm asked about this i am truly humbled um by the opportunities that i have to work with some of the young people that i get to work with um there are circumstances where you're working with students who don't have any other opportunities to share the kinds of things that they're able to share and explore through poetry. You know, to create a circumstance or, or, or an environment where a young person can stand up and share their, their innermost thoughts and feelings and to be truly and sincerely listened to by their peers and appreciated and applauded for that. And applauded not in a kind of cheesy audience entertainment way, but applauded as a show of of solidarity and celebration of the work that's been part, uh, that's been received. Um, there are so few spaces where our young people have the opportunity to do that. That it, it's it's beautiful to see what it is that that can do for the young people who get to experience those kinds of settings. 
given that they, you're giving them the platform, I mean, when you go along to a school, you're giving them the platform, but the kids themselves, do they, I mean, let, let's talk about disadvantaged, you know, inverted commas, disadvantaged schools mm. for the moment. Do they have the opportunity in terms of the language that they have available to them? Francesca, I think you've got a, you've got a daughter. I've got two. You've got two children. I mean, is it, you know, maybe, maybe some kids are, are not so privileged that they have a lot of language in whatever language it may be, you know, words at their fingertips. Is it necessary to, to know a lot about language to write poetry? I'm, I'm not dissing poetry in any way, but can you still do it even if you haven't got great education? Uh, I'm going to jump in and say yeah. yes, and one of the things I'm going to say is it's, it's not just about language, it's about how the language is valued. So, um, one of the things that comes out through some of the students that I work with is that poetry is something that's removed from them. It's something that they don't have access to, it's something that other people do, right? And in doing that, they're not valuing the poetry that they have within their own voices. So I'm really interested in how it is that we can bring together this understanding of the canon and the traditional and, you know, all those kind of highly rated works of poetry, but how we can also value the voices that our students have and how we can, how we can value their own language. Yeah, one of the things I talk about is is how it is that they can write a poem in the same language that they would use in the schoolyard or the same language that they would use to speak to their school friends and where the poetry is in that, how we can refine what it is that they might say so that it is poetry, but so that that poetry represents them and their, their lexicon and their vocabulary. Uh, there is there is poetry there. It, it's, it's a matter of finding it and, and refining that work. Yeah, and, yeah, and I would say that for want of a better word, I think spoken word and performance poetry is inherently democratic. And it, so when you see a really great performance, perhaps unlike seeing a great iteration of architecture or an amazing violinist or a beautiful ballad dancer, you, d you don't go, that's amazing, I could never do that. You go, that's incredible. I want to tell my story. I want to add my story. So it's, there's, there's, I think that spoken word is a very accessible art form, and I think it's, um, it's a very inherently political art form as well, because actually it's, it's not about the canon. It's about saying we all live in two worlds, the world of consensus reality and the worlds of ourselves, and the more people that add their inner worlds, the world of their memory, the world of their sensory perceptions, the world of is this just me to the consensus reality actually the better the world is because if there's only a couple of stories being told it makes for a very narrow and often cruel world you know and, and people are silenced or they don't feel ownership over a global society yeah. and actually spoken word is all about saying is this, is this just me yeah and 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 and, and, and so it's not about canon language, it's not about excellence in terms of measuring up to a platonic ideal. It's about telling your story with authenticity and honesty and bravery and fiction as well. Yeah. And, and in the words that you would use, I'm just going back to your children, I, sp I, I was listening to a poem that you read on your website, which is pretty, pretty powerful stuff. It was called I Am Angry or We Are Angry or something oh, about yeah. angry. You know, and it's really, it's really nice. Kind of like anything goes in poetry. I mean, you can say exactly what you feel. I mean, the craft of it, um, you can hone and, and develop. But in the meantime, you can just be absolutely yourself. I'm going to give out your website, Francesca, which I think is just francescabeard.com. That's, that's right, yeah. That's Francesca. 
francescobeard.com, francescobeard.com, if you'd like to tune in and listen to some of them. And what about you, Jacob? Have you got a website? Indeed, I have. jacobsamlarose.com. Jacob Sam LaRose. And is it Sam hyphen LaRose? Not for the website, no. For the website, no hyphens, no dashes. It's all just jacobsamlarose.com. Fabulous. I'm going to give out those details once again. Enjoy it, guys. Thank you very much. It's been, we've only just started, but it was good. good. Thank you Thank very you. much. I just want to say yeah. one thing to yeah. your, your listeners. Yes. Y- you have amazing eyes. Oh. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a thing. Thank you very much. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> the Francesca Beard, and if you'd like to hear her, she is the queen of British performance poetry, francescabeard.com, francescabeard.com. And do listen to what Jacob has to say, Jacob Sam La Rose, exactly as it sounds, jacobsamlarose.com. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking more in just a minute. Coming to you from the Open Book Festival. Nancy Richards. We're doing a little bit of segue here from poetry into publishing, I think we could say. But publishing, our, our, next, uh, our next guest does so many things, I'm not quite sure how to introduce her, so let me give it a go. She is uh, she's Susan Hawthorne, and she is, uh, she is a poet, she's a novelist, she's an aerialist, she's a political activist, uh, a publisher, and a Sanskritist. So I saw on the website, is that true, Susan? Are you a Sanskritist as well? So when you when you become a Sanskritist, what do you, what do you do? Do you just learn how to use uh, this? Yeah. And, um, I, I asked my teacher not too long ago, how long before I can really read it? And he said maybe about 12 years. So I've got some some time. But a bit of work to do ahead. But one of the reasons why you're here, obviously you're very connected to everything in one way or another. You're here because you're part of the Independent Publishers Alliance Conference. Tell me about that. Okay, I'm hoping that we can hear you, um, Susan, because I have a feeling that we, we might not be getting you. Um, let, let's, let's try again. Um, am I right in thinking that you also founded a, a feminist publishing? That's correct, yes. And uh, it's called Spinifex Press. Uh, and the Spinifex plant is a, a desert grass that go, grows in Australia and it holds the earth together, which is a very nice metaphor for what we try to do. I did wonder what it meant. <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about feminist publishing. I know later on we're going to be talking to Colleen Hicks, who's a, a publisher of women's literature here in South Africa, Paul Dodgy. Um, why do we need... So why do we need well, a women's own? I mean, one of, one of the things about feminist publishing is that we tend to be about 10 to 15, maybe 20 years ahead of the curve. So if you want to know what's coming, <laughs> ask a woman. <laughs> ask a feminist or a woman. Um, and 
the, the thing about that is that nearly all of us in feminist publishing keep our books in print. Part of that is to allow you know people to catch up with the ideas, but it's also that um, you know we have a lot of really interesting ideas that are floating around and I actually think that like the literatures in other marginal groups, I mean in Australia for example, the um, uh, Aboriginal publishing or um, you know, writing from uh, the margins wherever it is in the world is actually where the really interesting stuff is happening. The same for poetry, that's where the interesting work is and so I think feminist publishing does that, it keeps alive um, uh, a kind, what you might call a conceptual minority, but without that conceptual minority, we wouldn't really be moving moving on. Um, where the really interesting work is, but the question I ask is, but does it sell? Somebody said to me the other day, you know, what a publisher really wants is something that sells a lot of books, and the interesting stuff, the niche stuff. <laughs> is not necessarily going to be the big seller. Nonetheless, it's really important to get those voices out there. Is that where you're coming from? Um, it's a mix of those things. <coughs> and obviously, some books sell better than other books. And really, one of the things that makes a difference is that the author is very proactive. So an author who can get out and sell her books to a, to a public will sell more books. They don't even have to be particularly accessible or, or um, you know, mainstream or anything like that. Um, but it, it does make a difference and then there's also, I mean we all do the marketing that we manage we're out there on social media Facebook and Twitter and you know, other usual things but it's, uh, it is difficult I, I don't, don't deny that but we do have a loyal readership and um, that loyal readership comes back again and again and again so we don't need the same difficult um, we don't need a marketing budget of the size of the mainstream because we're not trying to get to the mainstream. Um, so the, the difficulty is that I suppose it's a balancing act, isn't it? Yes, By it selling always just is. enough mm -hmm. um, but retaining your independence because there's this thing about um, independent publishers alliance. Mm -hmm. In what way, how do you sort of distinguish yourselves and can anybody just become a publisher? Well, what do you need to know? Um, I said in the session yesterday, you know, if somebody says to me, you know, I want to be a publisher, my first thing to say is don't do it. Uh, but if after that and after you've really thought about it, you still want to do it, you are probably the right person. So you have to be pa passionate. And we select our books on the basis of feeling passion for them. So we, we don't publish books that we feel half-hearted about because why would we bother? Uh, and if you run, if you're in a very big publishing house, you can have a few books that you feel half-hearted about, but you do them just because they'll sell. But in a small press, you know, there's no point in doing that. I'd much rather publish books that I think, yes, I really can get behind this, and I can talk it up, and I can get out and say, this is the best book that we've published this year, even if I said that a month earlier with the last book. <laughs> We're talking to Susan Hawthorne, who's got plenty of things to tell us. In a minute, she's going to be telling us exactly what bibliodiversity is, because today is International <laughs> Bibliodiversity Day. So do stay with us. SAFM Literature with Nancy Richards.
The X Factor South Africa is in full swing. They've auditioned, they've made it through, they can already see their faces plastered on a CD cover along with some catchy title. But can the judges, who will have what it takes, watch the X Factor South Africa Boot Camp Week um, kick off on Saturday the 27th of September at 6pm on SABC1 in Zanzi for sure. Brought to you in partnership with the KZN Provincial Government, power to reaching the next level with the X Factor and Vodacom. Power to you. Well, right now we're all coming to you from the Open Book Festival here in Cape Town, talking to Susan Hawthorne, who does so many things I haven't got time to read through her list of uh, attributes. But uh, what you were going to tell us, Susan, I'm hoping you can uh, uh, explain to us exactly Biblio, International Biblio Diversity Day. What does that really mean? Well, in the same sense that you know, biodiversity is uh, about a balanced e ecological system in which one plant or animal or, or creature doesn't dominate the rest so it has to be in balance and generally the more things there are in the in the in the niche the better uh, and bibliodiversity works the same way uh, in terms of the cultural context so it's a complex self-sustaining system of writers and publishers and booksellers but in particular of books so that you don't get uh, just one book dominating the front of the bookshop and you know poetry right at the back which is ten, tends to be you know the poetry is the the the, uh, <laughs> the poor little plant at the back that is struggling uh, very and yet, frequently and yes i have to say that our previous two guests were saying that that through poetry it is the way for everybody to have their voices heard. i agree and in fact London, really. in australia that we have a really thriving poetry um uh, world at the poetry publishing industry at the moment and it's because the big corporates have pulled out of it so everybody poets have become publishers and publishers who are poets publish poetry and you know there are some some presses that do as many as six to eight books a year just poetry now that's a very big poetry list i tell you what is publishing not <laughs> truly an exciting business to be it's in mad. And i know you say that you shouldn't go into it but it sounds to me like a fun place to be it is cope Susan Hawthorne, thank you very much. Thank you. about your website, it's spinifex, uh, S-P-I-N-I-F-E-X-Press.com.au. Spinifexpress.com.au. Lovely. Enjoy the rest of the fest. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you very much. You're listening to SFM Literature coming to you live from the Open Book Festival right here in Cape Town.